Hi, I'm Deepa. And I'm Amy. Welcome to F This, a feminist podcast. Today, we're talking about COVID and women and how COVID and coronavirus disproportionately affects women and specifically women of color. So, Amy, I got this um, message the other day from uh, a group, a WhatsApp group as that I'm on, as we do, which said, Welcome mm-hmm. to 2020, written by Stephen King, directed by Quentin Tarantino. And it does feel like that. It really, really does. As you said earlier, um, that's the sort of like Western white male version of it. But yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah, I was thinking of like an Indian version of that, but I'm not exactly sure how that if I know enough about um, Hindi movies to kind of pull that one off. But it's been a very, very interesting 2020 so far. And of course, right now, Black Lives Matter, the protests are raging across the world and America in particular. Yes. Yeah. it, it has seemed like one thing after another to the point where now it really literally feels like the world is on fire um, because so many pictures from protests are of fires and and of all of the chaos that's being caused. And, um, and to be clear, not just by protesters. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. Some of the uh, social media I've been following has really had a lot of good analysis around kind of thinking of the police in this instance as counter protesters, Mm. right? Because they're the role that they're playing and the violence that they're exerting is not, you know, a typical kind of serve and serve and protect law and order discourse that they want to perpetuate. um, But is really about silencing and quelling this movement for justice and the accountability that people are asking for, for police and the defunding of police. And so that, yeah, yeah. So we're not actually talking about that today, but it's not something no. that we could start without acknowledging and really acknowledging, like, I think the longstanding, you know, just grievances and suffering and violence that has led to this that has really, um, is really kind of at a climax right now. And the latest I heard, the, the protests have been going on in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. for like 10 days. The other day, there were about 35,000 people there. Um it's not letting up and and it's really amazing to see people coming out and supporting one another and so yeah 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 so i i spent the weekend all of almost all of yesterday actually um watching documentaries about uh, race uh, specifically in the united states and i Mm -hmm. watched um uh, ijioma olua's uh google talk and a couple of her interviews as well and she's really really good so i'll do what um i can to amplify um, uh, Black Lives Matter activists in uh, America and, of course, in Australia. Australia has its own problem with Black Lives Matter. We've had yes. 431, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Indigenous deaths in custody since 1991 and not a single conviction. So wow. this is this kind of systemic racism is not at all unique or specific to America. It exists um, across the world, including South Asia. There's a, a massive problem in India with obviously colorism and uh, discrimination against uh, dark-skinned people, um, other than discrimination in a whole heap of other uh, bases like you know, caste, religion, etc. So it's definitely yeah. a problem universally and we've not solved it. And hopefully um, this will be uh, a turning point or a wake-up call for, for us to look inwards and for systemic change. Yeah, absolutely. 
But you're right. We're not talking about that today. We're talking yeah. about coronavirus. Right. I mean, the element of that that, that does enter, enter into what we're talking about today, right, is kind of um, how systemic and systemic inequality and injustices that are longstanding mm. at times of crisis become accentuated um, in really particular ways. So that is true for Black lives. That is true for Black people in the U.S. and not just in the U.S. I've seen some reports in the U.K. as well um, that people of color and Black Americans in, in particular are have very much higher disproportionate rates of um, severe illness and death from the coronavirus as, as compared to their sort of percentage within the population. Um, and so a lot of what we want to talk about today around gender and women of color, you know, is is not just about that, but also about sort of public care, public health, health care, domestic care as well. Um, but that point is the same, right, that these these longstanding um, injustices and inequalities and um, systemic violence is what creates the grounds that these kinds of crises exploit in terms of that that suffering yeah and the way coronavirus specifically hits women is at the front line is um women are disproportionately healthcare workers um represented in healthcare i think globally it's um 70 percent of all healthcare uh, workers are women um, in Shanghai, um, in China, 90% of nurses and 50% of doctors no. who were combating the epidemic uh, were women, according to um, a report by the by China Labor Bulletin, an NGO that's based in Hong Kong, um, mm-hmm. and Hubei, which was the which was ground zero for the outbreak. Uh, there were 100,000 women working as frontline medical staff, and we know this is an incredibly contagious disease. So when you have an overrepresentation of women in the health force. Um, on, in the healthcare workforce, then that's that's where they get hit first and probably um, the worst. Yeah, well, and one of the things that they've talked a lot about with the more they learn about the virus and how it is spread is how important viral load is. So how much of the virus you're exposed to actually really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be exposed to someone who's positive and actually exposed to the virus through you know, sharing air with them in some way. Um, through a cough or a sneeze, etc. But the people that are continually exposed to that actually it is viral load. The more of the virus you are exposed to, the much higher not only your chances of contracting it, but of, of serious illnesses, which is why I think we see with healthcare workers, we see, you know, folks that are younger and otherwise healthy having really adverse um, effects of the virus. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the kind of one of the big things to talk about is just this role that women play in public health and, and in healthcare systems. And like two aspects of that that stand out to me in the U.S. is that increasingly in the U.S., lower level positions in hospitals and healthcare settings, you know, so other healthcare settings, including places like nursing homes, which are, you know, some of the main places that the virus is wreaking havoc, um, that those positions have increasingly been taken on by immigrant women of color um, to the point where there are, you know, migration chains of folks coming here to work in nursing um, and to get positions in these kind of healthcare settings and where they're sort of doing a lot of the labor for less of the recognition and pay in normal times um, and in these times being, you know, exposed perhaps in some cases even more than other healthcare workers right because of the kind of positions that they hold 
Yeah. And then that's where the sort of the um, uh, the pay gap kicks in as well, is yes, that we yeah. know that workforces that are dominated by women and therefore sort of feminized occupations are mm-hmm. paid much, much lower than workforces that are dominated by men, like construction or engineering or IT, for example. So then women yeah. are getting much more of this, A, the viral load, they're the front lines of combating this um, epidemic, plus uh, because of the nature of the work they do and how society values it, they're also then getting paid much less than if that was uh, an industry dominated by men. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, And I think kind of another sort of element of that when you think of this on a global scale as a global pandemic is that you have, you know, you have kind of ladders of this or variations across countries that follow migration flows to some extent, right? So you have, um, you know, there's been some research in this area when you have women migrating, for example, from the Philippines to the U.S., to become um, nurses and to work in healthcare settings, they're often coming on their own, leaving families behind that they're sending money to. And then in those families, there's now a care gap from the mm. women who left. And so they're hiring, you know, women in within wherever they live in, in the Philippines to take on some of the child care or other care responsibilities, domestic responsibilities in that house. And so you have this chain of sort of a gendered um, and clearly raced as well in terms of the migration aspect. But you have this this gendered ladder of care where, and class, sorry, it's all mm. the things, um, mm. right? Where, you know, um, women from sort of lower and lower class statuses and, you know, opportunity are coming into the care roles to fill in for the people that go to care for the other the yeah, families of like the folks that have migrated down. or trickle down burden yeah yeah Yeah. well in in speaking specifically about um black women in the u.s you know there is we can't separate the care labor that black women do in contemporary public health or care settings from this very long history of from slavery post-slavery to the present of black women raising white women's families, you know, being the ones that were in the home actually doing the care for children and other similar kinds of care, um, either, you know, in a situation of slavery to a situation of coercion where there are no other options and this is what, you know, the the job that's available to you into our contemporary systems where it might seem, and it's true that there is a lot more um, agency, but where there's still this systemic racial inequality that really limits that agency it really makes it you know ties people into certain levels of that and it makes it a lot harder to work your way up into the higher paid better recognized parts of a healthcare system for example yeah um i wanted to just pick up on something you said earlier with regards to class and inequality like if you look at covid and its impact from um in in india for example the people who brought the disease in are the people who are the most protected and for whom the healthcare system works, right? So they're people who've gone overseas on holidays or business trips or whatever it is. Um, They've come back in with the disease and the people who are bearing the brunt of it now are migrant workers who, and there are thousands and thousands of them who've been walking for months to get back to 
um, their hometowns because that's the only place they have a roof over their head that's sort yeah. of safe. They have some sort of consistent, um, I suppose, not necessarily income, but some place where they can secure uh, food. And these are the people who've not at all had anything to do with the with with the transmission of getting this disease into the country. Um, and the system as it is as well disproportionately affects um, countries whose health systems are uh, poor at the best of times and are robust to deal with this. Um, and people who uh, then by definition are, you know, daily wage earners who don't have the ability to then stay at home for two months, three months. The lockdown in India has been going for a long time now. Um, so it's it's also interesting and this is stuff that we already know of how it disproportionately affects people again systemically who are already disproportionately impacted by the system we currently have yeah absolutely and you're reminding me as you're talking about that of something i have seen on social media and in you know mainstream news media as well this kind of frequent invocation of this idea that that a pandemic of this sort really is like an equalizing force mm. that it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter who you are. You can still contract this and you can still die. And obviously there's been a lot of pushback against that, particularly around, you know, the disproportionate deaths of people of color that are linked to, you know, specific kinds of, um, you know, ill health within communities that is a result of longstanding systemic inequality. So there's that, that's the very clear pushback. But I think there's this other underlying thing that I think a lot of people are really afraid right now. And they, they feel, particularly when they're in more privileged positions, that there's this, wow, you know, like, I'm vulnerable, even though I feel like I've done all of these things to protect myself in terms of the job I have, or my home, or what have you. And so they feel this vulnerability and it seems to them that it can, that they can then relate to the vulnerability that other people express. But the difference, the huge gaping difference there, right, is that there is a such thing, a very real and visceral thing of inherited historical trauma and suffering. And so it's not only about the continuation of those inequalities and injustice that actually make people's health you know, depleted and attacked in a way that makes them vulnerable physically to the disease. Mm. There's also there the the emotional and psychological ability to, you know, process and live through a crisis. Like it might be really scary to privileged folks right now, but that kind of vulnerability and precarity is something that these communities not only have lived with for much longer than the virus, but it it compounds it isn't you know what i mean so you know yeah. what i'm trying to say that yeah, it's I, and so um, so for those migrant communities in india you're talking about for example like they're already living such a precarious yeah life in terms of how they can you know their mobility and their um income and feeding themselves and nutrition and health and all of those things that when something like this happens it it isn't just, oh, it's a little bit worse. It is a really different, uh, just a completely separate kind of experience of it than people who also now are vulnerable. Yeah. And <laughs> there is no way. there is no give, right? There is no excess 
in their system that they are that they can remove they already right. live hand to mouth there is no yep. backup there's no yep. state backup in india yep. um for a lot of people some states the response has been varying by um in some states um mm-hmm. s- and then there's no personal backup and because they're away from their communities which is why these people are trying to get back home um there is no sort of societal network or community network that they can depend on um i was listening to a very interesting podcast by um the new york times the daily which i follow and they did one specifically on coronavirus and its impact on black communities and they yep. talked about how um because covid affects people who already have underlying um existing medical conditions worse therefore by definition it disproportionately affects black people because mm-hmm. they're the ones who have um more sort of complex medical conditions to start with mm-hmm. um and then it also talks about how class exacerbates that in that a lot of uh, black people live in sort of towns and cities which are by massive motorways um or are industrial and then have high levels of pollution air pollution specifically um and then also then the stresses of being an marginalized and an oppressed community mean that your immune system just suffers the onslaught of these these minor sort of um infractions not minor but just this constant level of stress uh which yep. again worsens your immune system which means that you're in a worse position to be able to fight something like coronavirus so yeah. you see all of these historical and systemic sort of disadvantages come together in this um in this sort of clusterfuck i suppose um yeah. come together in this incredibly dangerous way where it impacts people who are probably the least able to deal with that onslaught yeah and i mean as you're mentioning with the the example of the new york times podcast i think there is some coverage of this but i hear far more coverage that really wants to talk about quote unquote like disease burden relative to obesity and you know really like focuses in this objectified way mm. around healthcare measures that tend to disproportionately affect poorer and or communities of color and so it to me when i hear those it's only a slight variation in the narrative sometimes but when people talk about it that way it sounds like this responsibilization it sounds like it's saying well it's their fault because they ate too mm. much or it's their fault because you know they they Don't ate the wrong things and had high blood pressure yeah and it sounds like it's about com- you know people in a certain community just not being as healthy um and an association of that to individual responsibility as opposed to all the things you just said which are about sort of collective resources and and the pollution we create that is disproportionately you know impacting the health of people and the the ways in which you know the stresses of experiencing ongoing inequality and injustice um affect at not just finances not just physical health but you know uh, this conglomeration of of things that that impedes everything from your immune system to um your you know your financial resources to you know uh, sorry make it through not having a job for a certain number of months etc yeah yeah so yeah I, i i i like that there's been coverage of that but i have been kind of disheartened at how quickly some of the mainstream outlets just really jump to you know obesity heart disease without more careful consideration of how those conditions 
or the reality of, of some people's, um, you know, access to quality health yeah. is impacted in these other ways and how it isn't just a matter of um, a choice or series of choices that they made. Um, yeah. Because they don't talk about that in terms of race very often, but it very quickly gets, you know, put into that next yeah. category of analysis when you talk about disproportionate impact. Yeah. And I think there's also like the people who make this policy and the people who sort of suffer the impact of policy, healthcare specifically, is also um, uh, is also something that we need to look at. Like I think uh, decision making uh, is mostly by my men and white men. I think specifically in the United States for COVID, for example, Trump's COVID task force had 12 men and 11 of them were Caucasian. So there is no representation. And they were probably proud of themselves that not all 12 were. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Yay, diversity. Tick that box. Oh, um, God. And then sort of, so where are the experiences of women and where are the experiences of other um, marginalized communities like um, communities of color? You know, where does that then come out? Um, so you have experts and researchers, but then you have policymakers. And if there is no diversity in policymaking, then you don't see the result of that. And we're seeing that in Australia, in Australia now, is that, um, and with COVID in terms of uh, job losses, for example, that's been incredibly gendered as well. So mm -hmm. when you're making policy to deal with these job losses, who's benefiting? Is it a male dominated industry like construction, which is benefiting, which is the latest policy measure that's been announced by the government? Or is it, um, you know, uh, industries that are dominated by by women that are that are going to benefit, or women who are going to benefit? And we see that with with policy because it is so white and it is so gendered that these things don't get taken into account. Whether that's willful, you know, neglect or ideology, I'm not sure. But 55% of all the jobs that were lost in Australia were um, jobs that uh, women were doing. Mm -hmm. So you would think that the policy response would then address that, but that's not happened. Yeah. Well, and this is slightly tangential, but as you were talking about that, it, it was reminding me too, in terms of men and all of these, or, or a predominance of men, especially white men in decision-making bodies, you know, at a national level for like the example of Trump's um, task force in the U.S., mm -hmm. that it also, I think, has contributed to this rhetoric, this war rhetoric that's used, right? I mean, literally, like, people yeah. saying the word war, but even things like frontline workers, right? It mm. implies this sort of, like, battlefront. Um, and while I can see that actual healthcare settings or public health officials might be using that to try to drive home to people the significance of the problem, I, I can see where people might revert to that rhetoric. It's still, it's a very masculine rhetoric that is sort of bringing this kind of force to it that is on the one hand both I think um, it, it allows for a certain kind of posturing from like the Trump administration for example um, instead of doing the actual nitty-gritty work of what it means to provide care and to actually care for people who are experiencing suffering and disease, it'll it, it just allows this posturing of like we're fighting, etc. 
But it's also deeply ironic (laughs) compared to the beginning of our conversation where it's all of this war masculine rhetoric about front lines, yada, yada, yada. But the people actually doing that work on those Mm -hmm. front lines, the carers are women and they're women of color and they're the people that are not not only not part of those policymaking decisions, but whose, um, whose work is not conceptualized as this kind of violent rhetoric, but is actually about the opposite. It's about sustaining life and, you know, and extending it and, um, and providing care to those that maybe aren't going to survive, but in a way that, you know, makes them comfortable and et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a very kind of deep irony there with, with that mm. masculine yeah. approach. Yeah. And it it kind of follows through in our responses to coronavirus as well, right? With like from a lockdown perspective, um, uh, a lot of um, corporates, for example, now say work from home. And that's been the case for a while. My organization, for example, now wants to continue uh, for us to work work from home on a sort of a permanent basis because hey, it makes sense. It gives employees their uh, the flexibility they need. It um, saves a lot of cost for organizations. Mm-hmm. But I look at uh, the scenario that most women are in and I'm very privileged in the sense that I'm a slob, so I don't really do much housework. Um, so <laughs> There's a whole episode so, about that, everyone. Don't worry. Yeah, coming up. <laughs> Um, so I, I don't put that kind of pressure on myself, though I can't say I, I escape that pressure completely. But I also don't have children. Um, so if I did have children and, you know, little humans depending on me for care um, or for, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever it is, working from home would be a nightmare. I would not be able to do anything. Um, and it's very, very interesting. A friend of mine Um, was telling me this, that she and her husband are both working from home. They're both privileged enough to be able to do that. And she's got two young kids. And I said, oh, and she was she was telling me that, oh, you know, I can barely get any work done. I do like two, maybe three hours of work a day max. And I said, well, you know, why don't you split the responsibility? Like, you know, you take care of them for the morning and then um, the father takes care of the kids in the afternoon. And she said, no, they don't want him. If I'm around, then I am their primary source of of care. Whatever it is, they're throwing a tantrum, they need something, they're hungry, they want to play, they don't go to the father, they come to the mother. And this is the this is the other way, is that even if you do have a household that is um, doing its best to be as ungendered as possible when it comes to burden of things like childcare and housework, it's also that because the woman is the primary carer for the first few years of that child's life, and that's what the child is used to, that is its comfort. Therefore, yeah. if children have a mother and a father available, their preference is to go to the mother. Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting because I don't know, I haven't seen you know data on this, but to me what that sounds like as well is this, is another example of a kind of, a way in which the the prehistory, <laughs> the, the, the history before um, coronavirus, which I mean, I think some of us find impossible to imagine right now because it BC, seems like we're... You mean? Like before yeah, coronavirus? Yeah, well, I, have you heard these jokes? It's like, welcome to day 635 of 2020. Because <laughs> it just feels like we've been living this for longer than we have. Um, but anyway... Time that it sounds a bit like that continuation 
of dynamics. So even if in that family, I, I mean, I don't know your particular friends you're speaking of, but even if in a family prior to a situation like this of stay at home, work from home, um, if the parents were trying to divide childcare and household responsibilities equally, I think the the parent, the kids wanting the mom over the dad, it shows some kind of thing, which can be related to a bond, like you said, of early, early child rearing. But it can also be a sort of expectation of, well, mom knows more. Mom's the one who usually handles these things. And so if I ask her, she'll know or she'll be able to help me with this thing. And, you know, dad's not going to know um, what to do because he I've never had seen him do this or had help with this from him or that kind of thing. And again, it's going to vary from family to family. And I don't have data on this, but I think there is, you know, there is data in other areas of, you know, one thing I think I, I think my husband actually pointed this headline out to me that there was a New York Times headline a while back that, um, you know, fairly recently that was saying that, you know, men are reporting that they're doing more than half of homeschooling since starting to work from home. Mm-hmm. Three, And then it said that the first part of the headline and the second part of the headline was 3% of women agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually liked the way they phrased the headline because it was like, men say this. And they didn't say women disagree. They didn't say, you know, whatever percentage of women disagree. They 3%. Said 3% of women agree. Um, and, and, you know, digging into that really, it's... It, 70% of women say they fully are, are mostly responsible for housework during lockdown. 66% say that they're mostly responsible for childcare and that those statistics map on to pre-coronavirus lockdown statistics. And so that there is this continuation of, of the dynamics from before um, that can maybe be exacerbated in a way that you're describing where when they're able to get out of the house and go to a workplace that that women can do their full work jobs as well. And so maybe they were carrying a double burden of doing the work at home and the work in their office. But now that's the same place. And so it's not evening out to allow them to do their paid work because they're doing so much unpaid work. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's time for men to step up and do a little bit more. So more than three percent uh, of women agree that uh, they're doing their fair share. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I saw that headline. Classic. Uh, yeah. And kind of following on or um, related to this idea of, you know, work from home and the disproportionate domestic labor and childcare labor that women are taking on. I think. And this is happening, especially, I think, in certain professional industries that tend to have, you know, more men or more single folks in them that just don't even recognize that, you know, if they don't have kids or if they're not responsible for kids, they're not sort of realizing they're they're, they feel more productive when they're working from home they don't have to commute these kind of things so you Mm. you hear these things going around and I'm on a in a couple of groups of like um women professionals that are talking about hearing those things from their colleagues so you have that element where that home space is just really thought of very differently I think depending on what your relationship to it is what your responsibilities are but the other big kind of glaring example that's very contradictory to a lot of the conversations we're having about what it means to be stuck at home is for people, women and children that experience violence and abuse within their homes. You know, there's the plan in my state of Washington in um, the United States, I think, can't remember the exact name of it, but 
when they started talking about our stay at home order, there was all, a lot of the rhetoric was stay home, stay safe. Mm. And this is obviously meant to really encourage people to understand what social distancing is required and, and how, you know, we need to disrupt the spread of the virus. And I understand why they chose that for that reason. But there are many people, many women, especially and children for whom the home has never been a safe space. And being able to leave it to go to school, to go to work was the only respite they had from the violence that they experience in the home. So I think that's another way in which, a very gendered way in which there's kind of big contradiction to how we're talking yeah. about what a home is right now. Yeah. And with um, uh, intimate partner violence or violence against women, um, we know that control is one of those, one of the key elements. And mm-hmm. so even if there's no physical violence involved, the kind of control a partner has over um over his partner or a woman at home would be then terrifying. Um, So also looking at this trend of then working from home for corporates um, and, you know, uh, jobs where you can actually do that and them continuing, that's also something that organizations need to think about is that it's not, productivity is one thing, but then safety as well is that working from home is not necessarily the safe a safe space for a lot of women and then what do you do if this is the new normal right where what is your escape so it'll be interesting to see also how um organizations and policy responds to that yeah particularly speaking in terms of kind of those policymakers and response i think the other element of this that i've been thinking a lot about because i've you know um as you have as well done lots of volunteering with kind of the community-based organizations and Mm -hmm. um NGOs and things that that work directly supporting survivors of violence, that those NGOs themselves are also predominantly run and um, staffed by women, often women of color, um, which in many cases is important and ideal because they are taking leadership in an area where they are, you know, longstanding organizers and experts. So I think that that is really important. But right now, they're not only facing this increased demand for their support from women who are stuck at home with abusers trying to find ways to get the support that they need um, with very little time in the day to try to access it. Um, But they're also in a situation of state and local uh, budget shortfalls, right? I mean, cities and states are experiencing massive you know, they're spending their whole budget for the year already and things like that related to response to the virus. And I know a lot of local NGOs rely on the grants and funding that they get through um, city, county, um, state, depending on where you are in the world, how those divisions are made, but from those agencies and in the government. And I think that it's going to be really, there's going to be a longer term impact Mm-hmm. Um, to domestic violence support services, even after what they're dealing with right now of adjusting to virtual and support and demand, I think there is also going to be a real reckoning in terms of where are the funds for these really vital services that have always been underfunded. And now, you know, I think are, are going to be uh, applying for even more limited funds. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. All right. Whew. Well, that's... Um on that really happy note yes i know um (laughs) great talking to you as usual and i'll see you next time yes see you next time bye